Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. And do you remember the 21st night of September? Because we <laughs> sure do. And today we're talking all about Earth, Wind, and Fire. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org library. Hey, everybody, welcome back to a very exciting episode of the Music History Project as we honor the fantastic, soulful, funky, and innovative band Earthwind and Fire. You know, I was trying to figure out if I had anything with beads on it that I could wear. Um, this is kind of the, as close as it got. Um, energy, energy, energy. Boy, we have to have tons of it when talking about one of the most powerful bands I think has ever recorded anything ever. And that's, uh, you can quote me on that. Um, <laughs> just a great, great group. Um, and, and so, so full in their music to the point where I think there was even a, a moment while talking to um, Larry Dunn from the band about the spiritualness of the band, you know, the almost mystic proportion of uh, feelings towards what they were able to convey to their audience, what they were able to perform on stage and how they did all of that was just absolutely fantastic. Uh, very meaningful to so many people for so long. And it's an honor to collect a couple of interviews today, thanks to Ashley doing the prep work on this, uh, so that we can highlight their history, have them tell you their story. So three of them that we were able to interview over the years are all coming together for this episode, uh, including Ralph Johnson, uh, Larry Dunn, and um, one of the originals for <laughs> sure off of uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, and of course, including his work with Earth, Wind & Fire, and that's Verdine White. So I'm really psyched about this, and I hope you guys are too. You know, I think the word timeless really makes sense here, um, just because they have stood the test of time. I feel like you hear Earth, Wind & Fire songs in all arenas of music, whether it's marching bands or symphonies or just rock bands. Um, everybody is into Earth, Wind & Fire, and I feel like they just had such a big impact on music. Um, so it's very exciting to be able to sit down and talk about them and hear from the actual guys that were in the group. Very, very cool. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, even just going back into that a little bit too, like the samples that people use of their music, mm -hmm. um, you know, just the influence that they've had over the mm -hmm. years. I think, you know, some people don't even realize that they're being influenced by Earth, Wind & Fire, but they really are. It's just kind of mm -hmm. like seeped into who we are as a, as a uh, society. But I'm glad you brought up Mystic, uh, Dan, because I was definitely going to bring that up too. That's brought up quite a few times during this interview, and I think uh, it's a very accurate description of, of them. Uh, but yeah, getting absolutely. Us, yeah. And sort of spiritual too, in a spiritual oh. sort of way. You know, that's yeah. the thing that I remember as a kid, I know I'm old, uh, watching them on Soul Train. And even then, I remember just being mesmerized by what they were doing, not just the power of the songs and the power of how they played it, 
but how they conveyed those feelings. I think that's a very important thing. And of course, how they dressed was also a big influence. <laughs> I, was, uh, I, I was about to say that. <laughs> I wanted to have a cape so bad when I saw them on Soul Train. <laughs> Some fringe and some rhinestones, totally. get it all. Yeah, I was going to say that some of the trance might have been their awesome costumes that they had on. But uh, <laughs> uh, so let's jump right into this and uh, hear from Verdine a little bit. Uh, he's going to just talk a little bit about the beginnings of Earth, Wind, and Fire, and then when they really kicked into uh, gear and became kind of who they are and who we all know now. So let's start this off with Verdine White. So tell me a little bit about those early gigs, especially the recordings. How, how, how did you handle those? Well, in Chicago, they were like three-hour dates. And, uh, uh, and I was just getting experience. You know, it was pretty nervy-scurvy. I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, but I was there. Uh, and, you know, then you know, one thing led to another. But I, it was when I came to California that I really started understanding recording, mm. the recording process. Where I sort of found my, my voice, so to, you know, so to speak. And there's some wonderful recordings in those early days. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of those. Now, I don't know how early it is for you. Go back what you think is early. Well, when you first came out here and you started doing those gigs before Earth, Wind, and Fire. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, well, we did, what we did, we did, um, the first two albums were on Warner Brothers. Uh, but then right before that, we had done a soundtrack called Seat Sweetback that Melvin Van Peebles had, uh, Directed the film, and uh, and we were the first African American group group of color doing um, a soundtrack, and that was a real different experience because at that time, when you recorded a soundtrack, you did it on the big movie screen, so you were playing to the screen, you were playing to the screen, you know? so it was really a, a an amazing process, and it was like a scary process because Maurice was playing drums. Because all those records, him and I played drums together, drums and bass, and, and, and I was so nervous. I was looking at him. He said, "Don't look at me, man. Look at the screen. <laughs> look at the screen." And uh, and you know, we were playing the scenes, you know, and we you know we'd stop, start. So it was a an amazing process, and we did the full soundtrack in two days. Wow. And then uh, in that same year, we then we did the first Earth, Wind, and Fire album for Warner Brothers. And then maybe eight months later, we did the second album for Warner Brothers called Need of Love. So in that way, I was gaining a lot of experience. I was learning how to be more creative because one of the things that Maurice wanted me to do was to kind of get out of thinking like a session player and think like more like an artist and find your voice and your sound, you know, based on your own personal originality. And uh, he said, and he would tell me, he said, man, when they, when, when they hit the record, they should know it's you. And and uh, and he was absolutely right about that. So how did you create your own voice then, with that encouragement? Just by doing it, hmm. you know, doing it, you know. Uh, and when we started recording, it was a total different scene than the three-hour dates. We'd be in there 11, 10, 12 hours because we would be creating. You know, we would cut tracks and stop and listen, maybe forget about the track for the day, come back the next day. Uh, we would maybe do like a, a, a work track, uh, which maybe ended up being the final track, you know. But in the process, you know, you're listening, you're learning your sound, you know what you sound like, you, you know where you are in the mix. So by doing it that way, it was very creative, very creative, you know. I wonder if you could address sort of the spiritual element that you guys brought to music. Well, yeah, well, the spiritual element for us came out of directly out of those lyrics, of what those lyrics 
said to people and how they resonated with people. Um, and don't forget now, that was like the late 60s and early 70s and when we were talking about peace and love. And, and ironically, we're doing this interview today on Martin Luther King Day. So uh, his work, of course, was a big part of ushering in this globalization that we call it globalization now, but everybody being together. So I think our work really fulfilled that and we were part of that wave, you know. And mind you, we weren't the only ones, you know, doing that. It was that was a part of the uh, the wave that was going on at the time. But certainly, you guys get a lot of the credit for that because I think of the cutting edge. Yes, right. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think those lyrics combined with the music, uh, the songs, uh, the musicality, having a, a bit of a jazz influence, really broke through a lot of the. the uh, the other songs and the other artists, and we were able to speak our voice. Hmm. Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. I also think I would add another word on there, and that is sincerity. Yeah, you could really pick up what you guys were trying to convey. And, sure, you know, in a, in a real way. Right, and also to going back again. Uh, I said earlier we were the first African American group to to do some things. I think we were the first African American group to say these types of things. Uh, right before Sly Stone uh, had. Uh, ushered in this thing, you know, with songs, you know, everybody's a star, you can make it if you try, hot fun in the summertime. And he was, you know, out of San Francisco. So they were right in the middle of that peace and love vibe. You know, they weren't like a group out of Detroit or Chicago, where it was kind of like an urban sensibility. You know, he had, you know, it was universal, you know, playing Woodstock, you know, so where he was coming from was where we picked up, you know, you know, if you really listen to if you really listen to his music and you put his albums on and, and our albums right behind, you're here with the baton passed. You you really hear where it went to another level. Yeah. Yeah, that's very well said. Yes. So, what was your thoughts about the first album as far as um, opening up doors for you? I was elated because that was the first time I had ever recorded an album, and uh, and and unlike today. Whereas, you know, albums are pretty much second nature, you know, a lot of people have recorded, you know, it's it's not as big of a deal as it once was. And, and what I mean by that, oh, recording, everybody understands that recording. Mm. Then it was a big deal because very few people were recording on that level. You know, it was harder to record at that time. You know, you know, with technology today, everybody sort of has equipment you can record, you know, anybody can record. Anybody couldn't record then. You really had to really have talent to go in that studio because it was so expensive you know, to be in the studio. Uh, unless you were a musician, you weren't really allowed. You just couldn't hang out. So to be able to do those records was really great for me at the beginning. And I was still young. I was only, you know, 18, 18, 19 years old. So I did my first record, 18, 19 years old, which was, that was unusual too. You know, because a lot of the guys who recorded were much older than we were. You know, much older than we were, yeah. What bass did you play in those early days on the record? The Telecaster that I bought oh, when I was it? 17, yeah. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, I, I played that one all the way up to the Spirit record. Oh, is where, that? Where I got precision, yeah, yeah, until I got a precision. And mind you, in those days, you know, there were no endorsements. There were not, Now I have 30, 40 basses. I have, you know, <laughs> you know I'm getting companies send me basses, you know, and uh, that I don't even get a chance to play. I said, okay, just put it over there with the other ones, you know. And back in that day, uh, there were no endorsements for anything, nothing. You know, so that same bass that I bought when I was 16 was the same bass that was on those first records. Now, did you guys tour in the in the beginning after the after the first album? 
sporadically. You know, we were trying to find our way, you know. We do a couple of things here, a couple of things there. Uh, We went through a period where, you know, every time we got booked for a gig, when we got to the airport, gig was canceled, you know. (laughs) 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 Got to go back home. Uh, So we went through that. But it was when, later on, after we did maybe the first album for Columbia Records, which was the third album that I had, well, the fourth for me. Uh, but the first, uh, the first album under Columbia Records, when we started being opening acts, we were an opening act for quite some time. We opened up for groups like Uriah Heep, uh, Rod Stewart and Faces. Uh, we opened up for Curtis Mayfield. We did a, a round of college tours because college college radio was big at the time. So a lot of student unions would bring us to their to their schools, and we would we would play at their schools. We opened up for the Eagles. Uh, at the New York City uh, uh, Junior College, yeah. uh, New York, uh, and we opened up for John Sebastian. And John was so great, really great, you know, really great. Uh, I always give John a hug to this day because he let us perform with him at Lincoln Center. You know, John was a huge, big part of our life. And we were managed by the same manager at the time, Bob Cavallo, who did a great job with us, great job. What was it like um, with Curtis Mayfield? Uh, well, we were opening act. Oh, okay. You know, so... You know, yeah. <laughs> we, you know, we were young. We opened up for Curtis. You know, that's that's all it was. You know, it wasn't like we dialogue with them. You know, because yeah, yeah. don't forget we were opening act, and you know, you know, we were still pretty young. You know, still probably great experiences. Oh yeah, they were great experiences because we had never done anything hmm. prior to that, and uh, and all of a sudden you're on a show with those guys. You know, and no, and mind you, you know, you're the, you're not the headliner, so they're not screaming for you. They're not, you know, you're just making your way. So there's a couple of questions that would love to get your feelings about. Okay. First of all, how many calories do you burn on stage? A lot. <laughs> you are the, a lot. You are the energized buddy. Yeah, you burn, you burn it up. You'll, you, whatever pounds you don't have, you know, you'll sweat more off. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and where does that come from? That great energy you have. Well, you know, of course, you know, I love to perform, and you know, and I, uh, I joke. I never met a stage I didn't like. Uh, by the time uh, 7.30 rolls around, 7.45, my body just automatically gets ready, you know. And also, too, you know, we have like five generations of people that come see Earth, Wind & Fire, so that's really fantastic, you know. You know? Yeah, that's neat. I, you know, I don't want to overthink it, but there, was there a point where you guys started really honing in on what you wanted to accomplish in, in your music as those albums developed yeah. and as those hits started yeah. accumulating? yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, Maurice had a definitely very strong point of view. Mm. And he reinforced it with every album. And that gave us a tremendous focus. It really reinforced it. Yeah, he, most definitely, you know, it just got stronger and stronger. Uh, it, it, it revealed itself on each record that the direction we were going in was the, the perfect direction, you know, you know. Now, as far as your, your baseline to go, do you have any particular favorites that, that come to mind? There's a lot of good ones. Uh, now a lot of people think those parts were written out. They were not written out. Oh really? Mm. Maybe the intros were, but once we got into it, you know, that those that was that's my creativity. Uh, but I had a lot of help. You know, one of the baselines that I love was uh, "Shining Stars" was one of the most fa- favorites. You know, most of famous one. September was a nice line. Fantasy was pretty good. Uh, there's another one called "Yearn and Learn." Uh, which was on the on the gratitude album live. That's a that's a great baseline, and lines I did with the emotions, you know, you know, on, on a lot of Maurice's productions. Hmm. Yeah, so so very yeah, very interesting. Yeah. 
So once again, that was Verdine White on the Music History Project, um, talking Earth, Wind, and Fire. Very, very cool. Um, something to note as well, all of the interviews that you're hearing today are posted in their entirety on nam.org. So if you'd like to hear even more about Earth, Wind, and Fire, maybe something that's not mentioned in this episode of the podcast, just head to namnamm.org slash library, search for any of these guys, and their full interview will pop up for you. Awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah. And I mean, such a great way to start off. I feel like this podcast is to, to hear from Verdine and you just really get that sense of um, what Earth, Wind and Fire represented and who they were and what they wanted to accomplish. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's amazing throughout the whole episode uh, or throughout all the interviews, they talk about how Maurice really had like a a vision of what he wanted that band, the band to be, which I think is so amazing. And I think that they well exceeded what their vision was um and i just i you know the theme of of all of their interviews they talking about just bringing everyone together and you know promoting that equal footing mm. and we're all together as a family experiencing this great music and i that's i mean exactly how i feel anytime i hear them anytime i see them perform too even if it's just like a video performance you get that feeling yeah, and when I listen to that segment uh, for for Dean, I just think of his um, graciousness. You know, when I was a kid and listening to their records and watching them on television, um, I mean, he, he was so high up on the pedestal, in my opinion, so flashy, so cool. Those songs, my goodness, <laughs> just so amazing. And here he is talking to little old me for his interview. I mean, you know, I, I just I'm very, very grateful about that because um, it shows a different side of him and that I ever saw, you know, and that is the real guy uh, who he really is. And you it totally comes across in that interview. And and, and the same can be true with the next guy. Here's a segue. Um, <laughs> Larry Dunn is exactly the same way. You know, he invited us to his home. Um gave me a glass of juice that um, we later referred to in my house as the Larry Dunn, which Ooh. is, um, yeah, seltzer water and half a glass of um, like, I think it was Dole pineapple juice with some other flavor in it. I can't remember what, but Sounds refreshing. the general thing is, yeah, not the whole glass of, of juice. That's just too much. But if you cut it with some seltzer, it's fantastic. And that's the Larry Dunn. Um, Larry was <laughs> great. What a good guy. And the oh. songs, I just can't say enough about what they penned. I mean, all three of us have been humming uh, the horn lines of these songs all week. And I, those guys sat down and did that. I mean, it's just absolutely incredible. I also love the ongoing joke I've had with Larry uh, since that interview, which was, I think, 2013. I've seen him several times, um, one at backstage of a concert and a couple of times at the NAMM show. And uh, he always comes over and, and does the yow um, <laughs> because we have this back, we have this thing uh, I said, so what's how exactly did the yow start? And he said, somebody stepped on my toe. Yow. And, you know, it just sort of snowballed from there to the point that um, uh, my, my latest concept is that um, cats actually don't say meow. If you listen to it closely enough, it's actually yow. Think about it. <laughs> Think about it. 
Uh, anyway, Larry just dug that when I told him that he thought that was really, really funny. So then the, the time I saw him after that at the NAMM show, he pulled out a picture of a cat with one of those cartoon bubbles coming out <laughs> saying, yow. So um, anyway, super cool guy um, and a fantastic opportunity to uh, to share with you guys what is so excited exciting in in my life about earth wind and fire now and that is hearing the behind the scenes hearing these real guys you know you see them up on stage but to hear their stories and to have that chance to uh learn from them you know about their background about in the case of larry coming up the instruments that he played and how he selected what he played i mean that's a very important part of how he can express himself musically and it's really neat to see that and hear that element so I'm super psyched about that. So instead of me talking more about Yao, let's get back to the real Yao, and that is Larry Dunn. So I went up to you know Lonnie Jordan's uh, roadie, little cat, and I said, you know, what kind of guy is Lonnie, man? Oh, Lonnie, he's a great guy, but he's the baddest B3 player in the world. And, okay, I mean, I know he's good, but and I grew up on Jimmy Smith, and so, but in the world... So I got up, and then we were playing, and Sammy's like, you got it. So I took like about an eight-minute B3 solo and played from jazz to Baroque or just different stuff. Philip happened to be back in Denver just to hang out for a minute. He went right to the phone. There was no cell towers then. There was no cell phones. He put a bunch of coins, in, and he called Maurice, and he told me, I think, I think we got the guy. Said, you know, he can, he, he's, he can really play. Doesn't have a lot of experience, but he can really play, and he's a nice guy. And I told Philip Lair, I said, don't be telling people I don't have a lot of experience. I was playing nightclubs when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> and so I took that Rhodes that I had, and uh, I learned all of the, the material from the first two Warner Brothers albums by ear. Oh, I, I, I did take classical in the third and fourth grade. But I learned all this by ear and then flew out. Verdeen picked me up, almost got us killed going on the wrong lane on, on uh, Century Boulevard, oncoming traffic. He was mad at them. God bless you, Dean. Um, we went up to Maurice in his house. We whipped out the piano, played a couple of Earth, Wind & Fire songs, and I broke into a little bit of uh, Herbie Hancock, Maiden Voyage. And uh, as they say, the rest was history. Seventeen. And I think I had just turned 18, Juneteenth, June 19th, mm. my birthday, yeah. Mm. Huh. That's crazy. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a, you know, it's like I tell people, that with men impossible, with God all things are possible. Mm-hmm. So was there a reason why he kept the same name? I always wondered about that. He had an opportunity when he's reforming to have a new group. Well... The thing was, I think, you know, he always owned the name. And because people ask me that all the time. And from what he has said, that Earth, Wind, and Fire were the three main elements when he had his astrological chart done. But that, there was something kind of eerie about that. Because I remember there was a club in, in also on Colfax in Denver called The Shapes. And we had played there time, time again. And then one time I was at, there's a, you know, it's like the club is, is here. 
over Caddy Corner is a 7-Eleven, about three quarters of a block up. And I was at the 7-Eleven one time, and I remember just glazing over and I saw Earth, Wind, and Fire. And I just stood there for a couple, you know, for, for a minute, whatever. And just, it was, you know, wow. man, that's freaky, man. <laughs> yeah, freaky. you know, but yeah. <laughs> wow. So what was the first gig like for you with those guys? Um, <laughs> one of the first gigs was hilarious because Leonard Smith, God bless him, he was played football with Jim Brown. And Jim Brown was kind of involved in some management with Earth, Wind & Fire in the beginning or something. Anyway, but he's a big buff guy. And, then, and uh, when we started doing the big shows, he shaved his head and he looked like the genie. And he would introduce us with his shirt off and it was great. And, and, and he was road manager as well. And he did excellent at those two. But one of the first gigs was at El, El Camino High School, right? And this must have been 71 or something, 72 maybe. And, we're t and Ronnie Laws was with us then, Roland Bautista, who just passed away as well. And the sound was like feedback and horrifying. And dude is out there with, with headphones on like Tony. He got headphones on and the thing's feeding back and it sounds like crap and he's there going. Because he's listening to what he's hearing in the headphones. Has nothing to do with the ambience of the hall or whatever. So, so that was that was one of my first memories. <laughs> wow. Well, this is also the time. One of the things that's interesting to me is uh, your perspective on the um, electronic musical instruments that are becoming more and more accessible at that time. Oh, boy. <laughs> Can we talk? Oh, yeah. <laughs> again, again, life-changing. Um, my, one of my signatures is a mini Moog. Charles Stepney, the great arranger and producer that worked with Maurice in the beginning. Um, wow, yeah, we got some stories there. Uh, turned me on to the mini Moog. Because, I mean, the Mini Moog was out, but it was more like, I guess, soundtracks and stuff, uh, sounds and, and effects. I believe Charles Stepney was one of the first people to really utilize it in a more musical way. And I know that he had used it on a Ramsey Lewis album that I think he produced as well called Mother Nature's Son. And so I got a hold of that. I think about my first one in 73. And, you know, back then, I like Louisa, you saw the picture. I was the same height, and I weighed about 155 pounds, about 180 now. Um, and, he, and those things are heavy. And then with the anvil case, right? But I took it to my room every night. I mean, I'm used to lifting B3s at 13, so took it every night. I didn't have any effects or anything, just the headphones. And I would just, you know, it became my lover. And then by the time I did, what was the first solo I did? I think was uh, Feeling Blue, maybe. Yeah, that, a man. Cause I, you know, I'm not really a singer, but that's how I sing. And then from that, I got into the Arp Odyssey. I got into the Arp 2600. Got into, there, there was an outfit out of Utah called Steiner Parker. Did you ever hear of that? Oh, yeah. You've been around, you know, you know, air damn thing, don't you? Yeah, You're know. good. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. Because I, I think one other person that I mentioned that heard of that, but that, you know, I had it live. It was like a little square wood box, 
and it had all the thing for the patch cords. Mm -hmm. And what I would use it for then was again just the, the spacey stuff. That had an eight, an eight step thing, kind of like a sequencer, but you know, pre sequencer, fake sequencer. And I would take each one of the oscillators and and I would tune it, you know, and then I flip the switch, you know. And so, man, I just I had a little studio four track. And I just had all the stuff surrounded. Actually, I got a photo of that. I want to give it to you. And I think it was in Ebony Magazine. And man, again, I would just lay in there and just experiment. And, you know, but I always found a way to try to make it musical. Even on Sky Islands, where there's a lot of different uh, spacey things, but the main core of it was the Moog singing. You know. Did you have any trouble learning and programming the uh, the Moog, the pitch wheel, and all that was easy for you? Yeah. Because next to the B three, I guess it's you know what not so bad. I guess it's like the kids today. You know when the you know when they first came out with the certain computers and the and the games and the older people are like huh. <laughs> huh? And they're just gone. You know, I don't know. I think in every generation, you know, God gives certain elevation of certain, you know, electronic gadgets or what have you that are just comparable for that mind at that time. Because, man, it, like I said, it was, that was my lover. I took that to that room every night. And then the ARP 2600 and that solo I did on New World Symphony, uh, most people, a lot of people catch it that oh, that wasn't the mood. No, that was the ARP Odyssey. Yeah, because see, on the Moog, it's got the pitch bend, yeah. and it's got the modulation. On the Arp Odyssey, it was the, the tiny little buttons. But the good thing with that is that the the modulation, I mean, the the pitch thing, you could go for like two or three octaves. On the Moog, I, I believe it only gives you one octave. Either way, either direction. With that Odyssey, man. And then we, we were here at this, you know, at this house here, and we had a shed out there. And I had no idea that it was freaking leaking. And my Odyssey and my 2600 got wiped out. Mm. Yeah, that was devastating. And then, you know, I also got those, the Synthi AKS from England, the little briefcase. Oh, my, it was so cool. I had two of them. And that I put there, and it's got the little matrix for, for uh, in place of a patch bay. It was a patch bay, but it used little pegs. Yeah, yeah. It was so cool. Different colors, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I got to see if I, I told my wife, I want to see if I can find that. I think I, I saw them, and they're still the same freaking price. I think they're like 3500 bucks. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I did that. And then also the Oberheim 8 voice. Now, that I still have, and it's in good shape. Remember, Zobino had one. Uh, who You would know more than me. Who else had, who else had it? Of course, Herbie had one of those. Right. Yeah. Zobino. They didn't, because, see, I said, back in those days, we were always the guinea pig, but we had no choice, you know, because you had the main unit, and I even used that on uh, on um, fantasy, but you had the main unit with four voices. Then, if you wanted the other four, you paid another four grand, so it was about ten thousand dollars in seventy nine, seventy eight. But hey, I, I was all about tools of the trade. I never got diamond rings and all that. I just, give me my tools of the trade. And uh, on the beginning of Fantasy, of course, we had real strings, but I programmed 
the cello sound because you could take each voice, all of the eight voices, and make the, the attack and the decay just a little bit different. So it was like real, and it, man, it created such a beautiful sound. That was the eight voice that you used now? Yeah. Wow. You're going to make me go get it out the shed now <laughs> to bring it back up again. Yeah, man, that, that was amazing. Fantastic. And then, and then I had the, the Yamaha, was it the CS80? And I used to use that on, uh, uh, well, lots of better on, on in the stone, because we would do that. The trombone thing. So I do that with the left hand, and the right hand, I'm doing the, the roads, you know. <laughs> oh, I love it. And what else did I have? You utilized, before we get too far off of the uh, ARP 2600, you use that quite a bit. But did you program it ahead of time, or oh, yeah. did you do a lot of patching during? No. That, 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 that was the deal that I told people, you know, because, you know, with the EWF show, if anybody's really seen the real band in the, in the 80s, 70s to the 80s, man, that stuff was like, you know, dun 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 then the move bass, then the horns. And Maurice, there was no time for Maurice to break it down and light up a cigar. We'll take a little break here while Larry programs, you know, the show kept moving. So that's why I remember Monty White, our uh, Maurice's half-brother, he was a road manager. And I remember him calling me one time. He's like, Larry, man, you got the biggest rig in the industry. I'm like, and? Because, you know, it, this is not for show. It's for the music in the show. You know, because, like I said, everything moved so quickly, so I had to have everything programmed and ready to go. And I had some great roadies, Ron Pendragon and, and um, oh, God, the other, and the other guy. But I had some great guys, man. And they, you know, when I hit the state, they, they had everything the way. But I sound check every day. I'm there for an hour and a half. And lovely day. <laughs> You know, one of the things that I always wondered about, um, were there a lot of difficulties in getting the sound across electronically, like through the boards and through the speakers back then when everything else wasn't quite adjusted to some of those things, or was it was it pretty easy? It was pretty good, you know, because at, at that point, you know, Earth, Wind & Fire was, was pretty big, and a lot of the money, fortunately or unfortunately, but fortunately for, for me, was spent on the production. You know, so we always had uh, the great sound system, and like, and again, too, I tell people, Earth, Wind, and Fire, one of the greatest bands of all time. Yes, we had some of the greatest musicians, great production, and all that. But one thing that really propelled it is that we rehearsed, and it wasn't that that L.A. mess. You know, man, there's no budget, or man, I I got another gig. You know, everybody was there. They were pretty much on time and it was it was none of that okay man i got to get out of here now we would hit there you know with, between noon and one o'clock whatever and we were in there until six seven o'clock and everybody i mean was full wholeheartedly into it it wasn't like man this is a drag and i i don't know i, I see a lot of that on the i don't know about back east but on the west coast on the la scene you know it's like i don't see a lot of cats rehearsing that's a good point. Well, to be that tight, I mean, my gosh. Right. You got it for <laughs> Well, you know, because what we would do, you know, because I, I, was, I was so 
blessed, I became musical director, I think, when I was 21. And we would rehearse, I would rehearse just a rhythm section, you know, uh, Freddie, Perdine, Al, myself, and Johnny for like three, four weeks in a little tiny room up here in, in Hollywood. And then Philip Maurice would be in another room going over their stuff. The horn section, which became the Phoenix horns, in another room doing their thing with Andrew. And we do that, man, like, like I said, three or four weeks or so. Then we get together in a little bigger room and do it all together for another two or three weeks. Then we go to the big stage. So that was Larry Dunn. And I think um, even from that brief segment, you guys can really tell that uh, Larry and Dan had quite the bond uh, <laughs> <laughs> coming from that. I well, And you guys can also listen to the full interview um, on our website. But you just, I it cracked me up some of the times because Larry would put you on the spot and be like, Dan, you know the answer. What's the answer? <laughs> like you gave him the right answer about a few of his career things. And then he was like, well, you know me more now. So it became this whole test. It was so funny to hear that throughout the, the uh, interview. <laughs> but yeah, definitely a bond guy. you guys have uh, developed, I would say. <laughs> yeah. What an honor that is. Believe me. I am, I'm humbled by that thought for sure. Um, you know, Often during um, podcasts for which we are talking about musicians, we do give some recording um, listening tips or ideas or suggestions. And I thought long and hard about this. And I think really the easiest thing to do is just to listen to their greatest hits. And once you have fallen in love with that, I think it's really neat to start with the first album. The first album, I think sets the foundation for which they continued to propel. And um, even though they expanded a lot since then, not so much musically, but I think energetically, um, that's still a really neat place to be is at the very beginning, just to think about how they molded their style and how they developed that, because you can see that transcend over their careers, of course, but um, to be that powerful at the beginning and only go up is kind of, it's kind of amazing. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So let's jump back into these interviews. We're going to be hearing from Verdeen White again, and he's just going to be talking about uh, the progression of Earth, Wind & Fire and how their live performances evolved. So here is some more Verdeen White. Do you have a favorite album cover? They're all good. <laughs> They're all so good. The one I like, the, 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 uh, a lot of the All in All was great. I love I am, but I love that's the way of the world because that's when I had my big fro, and, you know, you know, now, you know, and, and now young people, kids ask me, what was it like to have that fro? And, you know, and, and, um, and, and, you know, back then, you know, we had, we had Afro picks and, and, you know, and I had a big fro. I mean, it was like, like this and, you know, and, and I had, a, and I used to keep an Afro pick in my pocket and, and yeah, that, I love that because that's, you know, that's when my, my fro was at its peak. <laughs> <laughs> that was quite a fro. That, that fro, my fro was at its peak, you know. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the height of the fro. Exactly, the height of the fro. That's right, that's right. That's when the bro, that's when my, my fro was peaking then, you know. You know, you know. <laughs> and then the styles, you guys, you know, clothes and, you know, all of that. Yeah. It was a great influence. A lot that? of people laugh at that era, you know. You know, they laugh at it, you know. Uh, uh, you know, they laugh at it. But when you really look at it, the workmanship on a lot of those clothes were just fantastic. You know, uh, that the late Bill Whitten 
he did a great job. You know, it was great. He did a great job. Yeah. There's a lot of thought put in. Oh, that. oh, yeah, yeah. It was a lot of thought. Yeah. It was a lot of thought. You know, and uh, uh, it was a lot of thought in those in those clothes. You know, yes. Well, my my question was along those lines. You know, you being the consummate performer, you talked about the evolution of the albums. Your live performances evolved as well. Can you say a little bit? Yeah. About well, we started as an opening act, of course, and then later on we got into the big showmanship thing, and you know, uh, uh, we worked with the late Doug Henning and. Uh, he did a great job with us, David Copperfield, and and a lot of people still remember those shows. Those shows uh, put us on the map, you know. They put it, they put us on the map, you know. You know. What were your favorite elements of those? Oh, just the rehearsals. I love the re those rehearsals were great. <laughs> the rehearsals were great because back in those days, you'd rehearse for like three months because they weren't easy shows to put up. You know, you got to put stages up. You got it's all cues, lighting. You know, it, it was a lot. We rehearsed that show. That show we debuted. That show November of 1977 when All in All came out, and uh, we started rehearsing like in September. And and ironically, what happened was Star Wars. It became very popular. So our our show came out at the time Star Wars came out. You know, coming out the sky with tubes and this and that and disappearing and you know it, it was a huge extravaganza. And exciting for you. Yeah, great. It was great. The rehearsals were great, and and watching people's mind being blown, and and, uh, and it was it was it was uh, a great artistic achievement as well. You know, you know. I wanted to ask you a little bit about uh, songwriting too. How how did you see your input on all of that. Well, Maurice, Maurice really insisted that we help with songs, you know. One of the things that, that he uh, uh, was a big stickler with it because we were a self-contained group. And so part of being a self-contained group, you know, you wrote it, you played it, you produced it, you performed it. And he figured if he was doing all that, we were going to do that too. And, uh, and it was a great thing because you had a chance to learn all of the uh, aspects of show business, you know, of, of what it was like putting uh, things together. You know, you would learn it from the beginning up. You just weren't concerned with your part, you know. In the beginning, when I first started doing those records, I would always just say, what's the bass sound like? But later on, I, I heard the full thing, you know, I heard the full thing. Very interesting. Yeah, it was very interesting. You were absolutely right. Well, and also, I always think of you know the element of the bass and the drum playing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, that goes way back to the early jazz, right? Sure of, does. Of how tight? If you if those guys were tight, you know, then that set the stage for everything. Well, I had an advantage, uh, Maurice and Fred being my brothers, so you know, you know, we were tight. You know, and also too, you know, there's a theory. Uh, I don't know if you have any other brothers and sisters, you know, but you know, when you come out the same womb, you know, you're on the same beat, for real. For real. I believe if you look at family groups, they're on the same beat because they came out the same mother. So does that make it tough for you to play with other drummers? Oh, for a while it did. Mm. Uh, the drummers that I played with later uh, were great friends, so that really helped it a lot. You know, Sonny Emery and I, very good friends. John Paris and I are tight. You know, so that helped in this era of drummers. You know, uh, sometimes if I played with another drummer who didn't know me. They were too afraid to play with me because they had heard about me their whole life, so they're just nervous, you know. So it's so it doesn't work too much. But uh, when you're good friends with the drummer, it works because really you're the ones that holding you're holding the whole thing together for two or three hours, the whole thing. You know, you can't, you know, without you all, there's no foundation. You know, so th th those parts have to be tight. Have to be tight. 
to be doing. Yeah. yeah. And, and have been. Yeah. <laughs> well, even with John Paris, I know you got, you can still do that sync. I mean, it's right. amazing. Well, John was a student of Earth, Wind & Fire's music. He had studied us. He saw us perform as a kid. So when I, when I was working with him, you know, he would, he, it, we, we just locked in. And then Sonny Emery being a, a, a jazz drummer in the tradition of Maurice, that was great too, hmm. you know. But as I said before, when drummers and bass players are tight, you know, you know, it makes it easier. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So once again, that was Verdine White on the Music History Project and talking about something really cool. And that's the relationship between the bass and drums. And this is something that makes Earth, Wind and Fire stand out from a lot of other groups. Um, mm. And it's because they have that relationship down almost to a science. Um, Think about drums and the rhythm. That's why you dance to Earth, Wind and Fire. It's groovy. Um, the, the rhythm is so smooth that it's it's not robotic, but it's also very much on the beat. Um, it's like a humanized robotic kind of, I don't know. It It's hard to explain, but that is why their music is so groovy. Mm -hmm. um, and the relationship between the bass and the drums, the bass is taking the rhythm that the drums are providing and adding melody to it thus linking it with all the horns and all the vocals and everything else that's going on. And it just, it creates this amazing orchestration of beautifully rhythmic music um, that starts with the drums. And so this is the perfect segue to the next person we're going to be hearing from, and that's Ralph Johnson. Um, and he's going to be talking about how he met Maurice White and getting into Earth, Wind & Fire um, and just the feeling of Earth, Wind & Fire and how their rhythm stands above other groups. So here is Ralph Johnson. So how did you meet Maurice? How did that come about? Well, um, there was a whole other Earth, Wind & Fire that recorded two albums on Warner Brothers, okay? And they broke up. And um, so Maurice came out here with Verdeen, his brother, and they were looking for a new band. And so I was playing at a club, which is still there today on Crenshaw Boulevard called Mavericks Flat, 4225 Crenshaw. And um, they saw me play with the group. The group was called the Master's Children. And uh, next thing I know, I was getting a phone call and they said, would you like to audition for Earth Wind? I said, sure. This was December of 71. Here we are, 2014. Something happened. As the song goes, something happened along the way. Um, but that was it. They loved the way I played, and I was ready to do something at that point. You know, I was in my 20s, and I was like, okay, let's, you know, Ralph, you got to make a move. Whatever it is you're going to do, it's start, time to get started. And so um, that's what kicked it off, and so here we are. Now, was Larry Dunn there? Larry would come in shortly after I came in. Yeah, Larry, Andrew, Al, Al McKay. Yeah. Wow. And that's, that's the group that became the earth, wind, and fire that everybody, you know, talks about today, mm -hmm. you know, so. So, you know, you've been asked a million questions about, about that band. Yes. My, the thing I would love to glean from you is your own feeling about, about that rhythm. It seemed almost, I mean, obviously curtailed for those exact guys for that exact sound, but well, what was your thought behind well, it? Well, you know, first off, we had a tremendous leader and mentor, Maurice White, and this man was driven. So he knew exactly what he wanted to hear. So he would, you know, we'd get in the room and he would start assigning you parts because he knew exactly where this whole thing was going, you know. And if you look back now, we have a box set on Sony 
called the Columbia Masters. Man, that's 16 CDs. That's a driven person. That's a lot of work, you know. So um, everybody that played in the band had a certain thing they brought with them. And Maurice allowed that, allowed that self-expression within the framework that he was trying to, you know, shape, you know. So it was quite interesting. Um, Al McKay had spent some time, who was very key in the whole rhythm section, had spent some time with uh, Sammy Davis Jr., but also had spent some time with the Watts 103rd Street Rhythm Band, you know, Charles Wright and that crew. So he um, uh, bought a very interesting rhythmic approach, and that's part of what locked it all in. And then him and Verdeen had a chemistry. The drummers that, because there were three drummers that recorded myself, Freddie White and Maurice, you know, at various times. So um, the chemistry was right in that band, you know. Then Larry with his keyboard, you know, uh, his uh, his chordal palette, what he was hearing in his head, you know. And everybody else, just Johnny Graham, the blues touch, you know, because he was from the Deep South. And so uh, it was the right guys at the right time. And that's why that music sounds the way it does today. If you go and listen to the live album, Gratitude, um, there's a lot of energy coming off that record, you know, but it was the right guys at the right time with the right leader who had the right concept, you know, and that's Earth, Wind and Fire, you know, rhythm, 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 melodic concept, the horn concept, you know, it was convergence. Yeah. It was meant to be, you know, so. So what are your thoughts about, um, the fact that people think it's almost mystical, some of that music. Well, we'll allow them to think that. Um, <laughs> and you know what? Maybe sometimes it was, you know, from where it was coming from, man. Because, um, you know, it's all, all, of, all that crea creative energy is out there in the ether. You just have to open up and wait on it to come on in, you know. So, yeah, some of it was mystical. If you look at some of the lyrics that Maurice wrote, you know, man, uh, where was that coming from? I mean, he, the man, like I said, was being led and he was driven. So, yeah, some of it was mystical. There's no doubt. So for your own contribution, what are your favorite aspects of uh, playing with that band? Well, having been so in love with, with uh, swing music coming up, it was great to be able to play with a band that had all this horn section going on and, and, and kicks you could actually hit and make the band jump and do stuff like that. So I really do, because I'm, now I'm out front doing vocals and percussion with Philip and Verdine. Uh, I do miss playing drums with the band because there's nothing like a big band that you can kick and drive. And I miss that, you know, a lot. But one must continue to grow. It's amazing when you were talking about bringing these different backgrounds together. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is what a great way of thinking about that, because you can think of those individual backgrounds and then putting it together. Well, mate, you know what? And even on paper, it might not have worked. Okay, that was Ralph Johnson as part of the uh, Music History Project podcast dedicated to Earth, Wind, and Fire. And uh, I just feel like we're on fire right now. This is so <laughs> awesome. We're having so much fun. Um, you know, Ralph, what a what a sweet guy. Great guy. Um, at the end of the interview, I think, I'm not sure if it was caught on tape or not, but as I we were taking down, I think, um, I, I kind of just said out loud what I was thinking, which is, 
wow, did I just interview Ralph Johnson? And he heard me, uh, I think much to my chagrin. I don't think I expected him to. Uh, maybe I thought it was more under my breath than it really was. And he goes, was I just interviewed by Nam? <laughs> really cool guy. <laughs> anyway, um, Ashley, again, uh, my... Um, my uh, appreciation to you for the prep work and putting all this together. And um, I know we're all going to be very happy about all the uh, post-production that Mike puts into this as well. And I think that one of the uh, areas that was a little difficult was just to figure out who we should include and who we shouldn't or who doesn't quite fit. Everybody on our list of those who talked about Earth, Wind, and Fire have great and compelling things to say. This just would have been a five-hour podcast had we <laughs> included them all. But I do want to give a shout-out to um, the many people that have worked with the group, um, the stage guys that we've interviewed, the lighting guys, uh, some of the people who helped with um, the publishing, uh, some of the other songwriters like Allie Willis and, and others that we've interviewed. Um, Recording. So, yeah, just a, a lot of uh, other aspects of their career. It, I love this streamline. I think it's fantastic that we got three of the members of the band, but I also would love for you to have the opportunity to browse the list of others who talked about Earth, Wind & Fire during their NAM interview. And luckily uh, we have a tag, a, a keyword tag that brings you right to that list. Mike, how did they get there? So if you head over to nam.org, N-A-M-M.org slash library, click on oral history interviews, and right next to the search, you will see search by tag. And if you start typing out earth, wind, and fire, it'll autocomplete for you and then show you all of the interviews that we have uh, talking about earth, wind, and fire. And yeah, like Dan said, it's an amazing list. We wish we could have included them all, but this episode would have been like 40 hours if we did that. So <laughs> <laughs> go check out the tag and you'll you'll totally enjoy it. It's always a struggle for me of like when I <laughs> when we have our topics and our themes and I'm going through and listening to everything. It's so hard to to narrow it down and figure out exactly what story we're going to be telling. Um, but like Dan said, I I mean you can't say no to just three of the band members telling that story. <laughs> That's the best. Um, so definitely great. But we're gonna wrap this up with listening to a little bit more of Verdine. Uh, and he's going to be mostly kind of reflecting a little bit on the career and Earth, Wind & Fire and kind of the cultural uh, position that they're in now where people just kind of know them and they just like, you know, they don't know where from or how, but they know it. And most people know the song, whether it's a sample, whether it's being covered, whether it's a commercial or like he mentions in here, a birthday card. <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, here is last little segment with Verdine White. You know, one of the things I also um, found very interesting is your your philosophy on how music has changed, and you know, just talking not even going back to how you guys um, were influenced, but how current music has been influenced by what you guys have been able to create, and, and just seeing that evolution. What has that been like? Well, you know, what happens, every generation, they go back and they sort of use the previous generation as a foundation to bounce off of. No more different than we did. Uh, you know, we went back, you know, you know, the people that we heard first, you know, Miles, Train, uh, the Beatles, Motown, you know, you sort of have a, a, a 
a point of reference. And then you go on your own, and then you create your own style of music, for better or for worse. Uh, and then the other generations, then they go back, you know, and they use you as a foundation so they can put some of those elements in their music, you know? You know, so I think it's, it's they kind of one hand, you know, it's a win-win for everyone, you know, particularly if the music's good, you know. And, and, and the previous generations go with the, the best music, you know, the music that inspired them coming up. Because there's, uh, they're, they're, when people listen to music, they're just not listening to music. They're living it, they're breathing it, and you almost become a beacon of hope for them, you know. You know, uh, where they listen to music in the bedroom and they're not telling the parents, but it's inspiring them. Because they say, one day I want to be like that. You know, and we did the same thing. You know, one day I, well, I, wanna, I wish I could play like that. I wish I could sing like that. I wish I could be like that. One day I want to be like that. So your music does a lot of things for people, you know, a lot of things, yeah. Does it surprise you to hear, I mean, even hip hop has been influenced. You can hear Earth, Wind and Fire in just about every genre of music these days. Does yeah, it, do, it does. It does surprise me. It surprised me. But at the same time, it, it, uh, it, it humbles me, too. It really humbles me, you know. And then even when, when even when cats like Snoop come up, you know, he's so polite. You know, he says, Mr. White, I'm a, can I take a picture? I said, yeah, 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 you know. So I, so I get that now, you know. Uh, uh, can I take a picture, you know. And, um, and I take every picture, you know, with kids, whether it's Instagram or, uh, you know, whatever new things that's going on, you know. And, uh, and you learn from the younger generation, you know. How so? Well, because they're always up, coming up with new things. Like, you know, my niece might say, Uncle Verge, Instagram. I said, what is that? I'm still on my MySpace page. <laughs> you know, so you learn, you know, and they laugh at me the way you're laughing, right? And you learn, and, and, they, and they show you things. That's how you do this, you press this button here, you do this, that, you know? And, and they teach you how they think about music and where they're coming from. And at the same time, they love your music. So I think really, you know, the work that Dr. King, you know, the work that my brother Maurice threw out there for everybody to bite off of and, and, and congregate around. They've really done their work. The fact of it is that now we have a multicultural society and everybody is exchanging ideas. You know, it's really happening in front of us without even saying it. You know, because I see it every day. I see how things are changing in our society, that we really are a multicultural society across the whole world. And that's, and that's going to help music in the future too. You know, being an advocate, you know, telling the young people they have to keep it universal. You know, because we can learn from each other. And, and one day, you know, we won't even have any categories of music. There won't be hip hop. There won't be R&B. There won't be jazz. Won't be play. It's just going to be music. That's what it's going to be, music. Well, as long as it can connect to people. And I think that that's what's really been interesting about your in input, you know, to the culture. I think right. about, like, sing a song. I mean, that relates to everybody. Everybody right. knows that feeling. Right, man. Wants that feeling. You're absolutely right. Wants to sing along. That's right. That's right. Exactly. You know, and, and it's embedded in people's hearts. And, and now, if you notice now, um, uh, they're putting the music in birthday cards and, and things like that. And, uh, uh, and for my birthday, I got a birthday card, uh, and they had us on the birthday card. Really? Yeah, because but they had it in a joking matter, you know, like uh, um, uh, they had us earth, wind, and fiber. Uh, 
you know, because it goes along with our age range, you know, because at our age range, we talk about fiber, you know, with the, you know, I, I, we talk about different things now at our age, you know, you know, are you taking that fiber? That's not what young people talk about, right? That's what we talk about. And so now we're part of American culture, you know, when people say that, I said, oh, well, that's said, we even made the uh, birthday cards and the jokey part of it, which means we're part of just normal conversation, you know, we're part of their uh uh, their the world, you know. You know, they might not know who we are all the time, but you know, they know us like they know Sony. They say, oh, "I know it's been Oh, we're just part of their life now, you know. You know, you, you know, you can tell you did a good job when you're just part of their everyday thing, mm-hmm. you know. That's right. When you're part of their everyday thing, without them even thinking about it. The same with humming a song, right? Right. I mean, people start humming. I, that must be so great to be a part of that. I mean, it's just right. the atmosphere, almost, right. you know. Right. And then what happens is then, you know, you just, you're just part of the universe. Yeah. You're just part of everything that goes on, you know, without them even thinking about it. You know, they don't have to think twice to know, to know who you are. So that will do it for uh, this week's episode featuring Earth, Wind, and Fire and uh, celebrating the month of September, <laughs> among <laughs> other things. <laughs> Um, I had such a great time listening to these full interviews. Hopefully you guys get a chance to go listen to those as well if you're interested. Uh, It's amazing how these three individuals who obviously were in the band together and have that bond, but their background before Earth, Wind & Fire is so similar. And Mm. you hear just, you know, their love of music, their love of all genres of music and really just trying to bring that all together. And I think that that's, I mean, it, it speaks well to what that band, what Earth, Wind & Fire is, uh, but it's just amazing that all three of them kind of well before Earth, Wind & Fire had that that idea of blending those genres and that there was no boundaries that they could, uh, that they needed to stay in. Um, so just fantastic interviews. And I now just want to go listen to a bunch of Earth, Wind & Fire. <laughs> <laughs> you must, absolutely. You know, and, and I was also thinking uh, of a, a, another neat little moment with uh, with Larry Dunn at a NAM show when I, I was saying something to him in the hallway about you know it's it's always such a pleasure to uh, to talk with him and and to um, have his interview as part of our collection and all that stuff and he put his hand on his heart and he said you know what all of us in the band all of us feel the exact same way that people are so compelled to listen to our music because it was their great joy to express themselves musically. So the fact that people appreciate that is a great honor for them. And I really felt it when he said it, I really, really felt it. So uh, I'm expressing that to you guys because um, it's definitely a two way street. When you listen to their music, they're very grateful that you are listening to their music because that's what they wanted to accomplish. It's really awesome. And like you said earlier, Dan, I encourage everyone as well to check out the greatest hits from Earth, Wind & Fire, just because there's so many songs that you know, but you don't <laughs> know that you know. <laughs> They're just one of those bands that you'll start listening and, oh, I know this, I know that. And then before you know it, you're listening to their whole discography and you're a huge fan. <laughs> it's it's going to happen because they're just one of those <laughs> bands. <laughs> no doubt. Well, thank you everybody for listening and watching. If you're on nam.org, we have the full video version of this podcast there. And we will be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. 
If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. <laughs>